Let's bow our head in prayer. Father, thank you for the um, pleasure of, of being in your presence, of, uh, of the gifts of, uh, of your people that lead us into that presence and, and remind us of our, um, of our really our constant need to um, be refreshed by you to be in fellowship with you, um, and to be able to express to you, Lord Jesus, um, I love thee. Um, and we're grateful, Lord, that uh, we can gather like this, and even at times, Father, we may take it for granted. But I pray, Lord, that even now, um, your spirit would Remind us of the awesome privilege we have to freely gather like this and to, um, as a body of believers, lift our praises to you like a, like a, a fragrant offering, a, an aroma that ascends to you and that we can open your word and as we will do so now and, and uh, be instructed by, by you, that's my prayer, Lord, that your spirit would, would um, direct us in um, your word and um, it would be your spirit that would lead us into truth and your spirit that would uh, remind us of the awesome privilege uh, it is to be your children. And so we... Just pause and say thank you, Lord, for um, all that you have provided for us already this morning, Father. And again, grant us your grace, Father, to um, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Um, and we'll depend on you, Lord, to uh, get that accomplished today so that we'll leave here differently than when we walked in. And I pray this uh, in all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning and, uh, and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you are here with us. And uh, if you are visiting with us, especially a, a warm welcome uh, to you. Uh, Lisa and I have been blessed over the last seven months with uh, three new grandchildren. So uh, uh, Hudson uh, Avery is uh, on the left. He's seven months old. And Grace Carey is in the middle. She's three months old. And little Elliot Moorhead uh, was born a month ago. So we are uh, very, very blessed. And even though they, they all have different last names, um, Carrie Blood is going through them. They have that in common. Um, they are uh, all equally very talented, extremely intelligent. <laughs> I do worry about the Avery once in a while. <clears throat> but um, very, very uh, gifted and uh, exceptionally beautiful uh, they also have something else in common. They all have a sin nature. They're born sinners. They don't have to be taught to be self-centered. They're going to be naturally bent that way. They're sweet, they're cuddly, they're adorable, but they are sinners. We've been talking about that for the last number of weeks here in our 
study of the book of, of Romans. Paul has been making that case over and over and over again, and maybe you over the last few weeks are as tired of hearing that as maybe I am preaching it. But it's here in the book. It's what it, it tells us. Um, as we saw last week in chapter 3, Paul builds his argument, and then, then he concludes with this court, courtroom scene as the charge is, is made there in verse 9. What then? Are, the, are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All mankind is under the judgment, under the condemnation, under the sentence, under the enslavement, the domination of sin. We are all under sin. Its power, its presence, its, its, its mastery over us. That's the charge. And then verse 10 through 18 is the 14-count indictment. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. And he goes on and on. A 14-count indictment, which concludes in verse 19 as if a mankind is trying to give a little bit of a defense. Yeah, but what, what about... And yet 19 says, and we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. The King James says, every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become accountable to God. Man's attempt at a feeble defense is shut off immediately. Every mouth is stopped and he stands accountable before a holy and righteous God. Which leads to God's verdict that is rendered there in verse 20, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's no wiggle room, there's no loopholes, no high-powered lawyers that can get anyone out of this. By works of the law, no flesh, no person stands acquitted. That's the word to justify. No person can stand before God right because there is none righteous, no, not one. And if we looked at verse 20 a little more carefully, we even see it's, it's maybe worse than we suspected. It says, by works of the law, no flesh will be acquitted, will be justified in his sight. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, it was this uh, argument that Paul was saying that, okay, you want to do good works, you, you want to be, uh, go down that road of, of your own goodness, well, okay, if you're going to do that, verse um, 13 of chapter 2, it is hearers, not hearers of the law who are just before God, it's doers of the law who will be justified, and he meant by that 100%. Perfection. God had said in the Old Testament, you've got to be as holy as I am holy. You've got to be as perfect as I am perfect. God doesn't grade on the curve. It's, all right, you, you want to be found right before God? Well, man, you've got you to come out of the womb squeaky clean, and you've got to live that way the whole entirety of your life. 
it's just not hearing, it's doing, and it's perfection of doing. But as he has built his case, his argument, he now comes to the conclusion, by works of the law, no flesh can be declared right before his eyes. No matter how good a man lives his life, no matter how carefully he tries to obey the Ten Commandments or or live that squeaky clean life, it is impossible by works of the law, by living out a a code of conduct, it is impossible. Man cannot self-improve according to God's estimation. He cannot get himself right before God. No flesh is acquitted before God. Job, back in Job Chapter 9, verse 2, asks the question, how can a man be right before God? It's the age-old question. How can a man be right before God, be righteous before God? And the answer is, according to the book of Romans, he can't. He can't. Man is hopelessly lost, and there is not one thing man can do about it. By works of the law by living and fulfilling out God's code of conduct it is impossible he says for anyone to be justified so the question or one of the questions is what hope do we have of ever being spared from the certain doom of a holy God that's going to come against unrighteous men This whole kind of section started in chapter 1, verse 18. Um, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It builds to there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. A holy God, to keep true to his character, has to bring judgment against sinners. And so how can anyone, if what Paul is saying here is true, how can anyone be spared from the certain doom of the wrath of God? Is there any escape? Is it possible to escape God's wrath? Can mankind be rescued? And as we'll see beginning in verse 21, God has a glorious rescue plan that indeed Though we are incapable of doing this for ourselves, God rescues sinners. Now, before we get into that, it raises another question and maybe another problem. How can God save sinners and remain just? How can God bring sinners into his heaven and and be just doing it. If God, the judge, is without injustice and and is completely righteous, how in the world, if he doesn't grade on the curve, how in the world can any of us get to heaven because there is no one righteous, not one? We're all sinners. What could he possibly do to condemn sinners other than carry out the sentence of death. If you think about it, there's really only three options at God's disposal. 
One is he can be true to his character. He can be true to his character of holiness and righteousness and execute the sentence of condemnation and cast all mankind into hell. Now that's the fair and just thing to do. Or second option is he could compromise his holiness and his righteousness. He could kind of wink at sin and say, all right, I know I shouldn't do this, but. He can violate his own character and let sinners go scot-free, get away with murder, as it were. A third option, I mean, he either is going to do right and just and condemn all people or, or blink at sin and, and go against his character. Or there's a third option, and that is somehow he could change unrighteous people Somehow, you know, kind of like hocus pocus and, and change unrighteous people to be righteous and therefore see us as righteous and therefore acquit us. Change unrighteous people to righteous. What did God do? Look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we need to look at these verses very carefully. Some have said, if the book of Romans is maybe one of the most important, if not the most important book in the Bible, the verses we're going to look at are probably the most important verses of the book of Romans. I tend to think that's close to being true. And folks, we've got the privilege today to look at the most important section in the most important book of the most important book of the world, the Bible. So let's unpack this. Verse 21 begins with a dramatic contrast, and we mustn't miss it but now, but now. It's, it's a little Greek phrase, nuni day. But now, nuni day. It's very significant. When the Apostle Paul wanted to show a major change of a position, a major, reflect a major contrast, this is what I've just said. Now I'm going to pivot and change it completely. Nuni day. But now. It sets up a, a sharp contrast. Let me give you an example of that. Back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, he's talking about that if Christ died and there is no resurrection, then he is still dead and we are still in our sins. There's no hope in the world. But, that, but then he says, but now, noonie day, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Major pivot. If Christ is dead, we're hopeless Noony day, but now. Or um, in the book of Ephesians, he's talking about how Gentiles were separated from the, the covenants of God, from the, from the blessings of God in the Old Testament. It was the Jewish people that were the, the chosen people of God. But Jesus Christ came, and he, he removed the dividing wall, and he puts it this way. 
in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now you who are far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. And here in Romans chapter 3, 21, having talked about the hopelessness of sinners, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. We're all under sin. We've been guilty as charged. The verdict is rendered. We stand with our hands over our mouth, hopelessly condemned. And then he comes in verse 21 and he says those glorious two little words, noony day, but now. What does he say? But now the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been made known, has been manifested. He's talking about an objective gift. It's from God. It is God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is bestowed on unworthy sinners who simply believe in him by faith. It results in a new status of righteousness. That God does the unthinkable. He does the unbelievable. He takes unrighteous people and he actually does bestow upon us a gift of his righteousness to our account. Four things Paul says about this righteousness. First of all, it comes from God, and it's apart from any works of ours, apart from the law. Now, apart from doing good, our own activities and obedience to the law. Apart from that, it's all a gift of God. It's something God provides. Second of all, he says, and it was witnessed to by the law and prophets. In other words, you can go to the Old Testament. This is no surprise. God has talked about this. In fact, when you get into chapter 4, he's going to use one of the classic examples in the Old Testament of this principle of the gift of God. It's the person Abraham. Abraham was a worshiper of the moon god of the land of uh, the city of Ur, the land of Chaldees. This guy was a rank pagan. And all of a sudden, God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so Abraham did what? Okay. <laughs> he believed God. And what did God do? He gave him the gift of righteousness. Freely. He saved him. And Paul is saying, this principle of the gift of God's righteousness has been witnessed to in the law and the prophets. Thirdly, he's saying, it is given to all who simply believe. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. A person is given the righteousness from God simply on the basis of faith and faith alone because you can't earn it or do it somehow. It's apart from our works. It's simply on the basis of faith. The fourth thing he says, and it's given to anyone without distinction who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one earns it. No one is good enough. I like the illustration. We've used it here, the little presentation we call the good news, bad news. Larry Moyer taught us over the years, good news, bad news approach. And one of the first points of the bad news is that we're all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. The illustration is um, we're out here in the parking lot and uh, I challenge you to, as we pick up a, each of our, a rock, and I challenge you to see who can throw that rock and hit 75, 80 miles away 
the Washington Monument in downtown D.C. And so go ahead, give it a try. Wing away. You pick up your rock and you give it the best shot you can and you're throwing it eastward somewhere and it maybe lands just outside the parking lot at Fellowship Bible Church. I pick up my rock and I begin to throw it and I actually drop it back here and don't even get it out there. Now, the point of the illustration is neither you nor I are going to hit the target, the Washington Monument. You might throw it farther than me. I might throw it farther than you, but we'll never hit the target. It's impossible. We will all fall short. God has a standard. If you want to get to heaven, you have a standard of righteousness that has to be met. No one can meet it. We've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Now, this is an amazing, astounding truth with what we're reading right now. Gives us great insight into the heart of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, but now, noony day, apart from any works of the law, any attempts of our own goodness, the righteousness of God is revealed, given as a free gift to any sinner, undeserving sinner, who simply believes and trusts Christ as their Savior. God's own righteousness comes over to our account, unrighteous sinners. And that's why that little phrase is so important. But now God. Once hopelessly lost in sin, condemned sinners, but now God. Once doomed and certain to experience the wrath of God, but now God. But now, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't just drop the charges here. I mean, you just can't. Isn't that like, again, kind of, covering up our sin and blinking about it. and I mean, how can God just give undeserving sinners the free gift of his righteousness and then acquitted, acquit us of our unrighteousness? How does that work? Doesn't that call into question the character of God? Look at verse 24. It begins to give us an answer. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being justified as a gift. And again, a verse that we need to break apart word by word. Being justified, and again, to justify means to declare righteous, to, to acquit of all crimes. It's a, a, a statement, as like a legal statement you are declared to be right. You receive the, the free gift of God's righteousness. God looks at sinners now with the righteousness of God and he acquits us. He declares us to be right. God gives us the gift and then declares us to be right. Being justified, it says, as a gift. 
the, if you have an NIV version, it says being justified. I think it says freely. It's a little word that means without a cause. Without a cause. Something that is bestowed, something that is given without a cause. In fact, interestingly, we won't take the time to turn there. If you want to look at it, you could jot down John 15, 25. But in John 15, it's a statement that says Jesus was hated without a cause. It's the same word that is used. Jesus was hated. It wasn't anything of himself. There was nothing that Jesus did to deserve to be hated. He was hated without a cause. This word is used in the positive here. There's nothing that sinners did, nothing that we did that would earn a gift given to us by by God. He gave it to us without a cause. Without a cause. Last Saturday, I, um, our little, the, the older brother of the little girl who was in the middle of the picture, little Grace's brother, Caleb, who's seven, he had his last basketball game down in Charlottesville. Haven't been able to go all winter. I said, you know, bye, George, I'm going to go. I'm just going to get up. It was a 9.30 game. I'm going to get up, take off down there, two-hour drive, go to the basketball game, come home. Of course, Lisa, as many of you know, she watches her mom, 93-year-old mom with dementia, and it's just hard for her to get away. But a friend here at church heard, overheard that conversation or something that she had said, and she said, hey, I heard Mark's going down to watch the little basketball game with Caleb. I'll come over and watch your mom for you. Go ahead and go. And so Lisa was able to go with me while this friend came over at 7 in the morning and took care of Betty. Now, she didn't owe us anything. It wasn't like we had done something for her and now she was paying us back, you know, keeping a little ledger account like, well, okay, you did this. How about if I do this? It was without a cause. It was freely done. Freely done, God gives us his righteousness and it says it's by his grace. Being justified is a gift by his grace. Being justified freely by his grace. And grace is God's operating principle towards sinful man. It's the way God always acts towards us. It's his operating principle to undeserving sinners. It is grace. Grace is God giving us his blessings, his his favor, totally apart from any merit that we do. He gives it to us freely, without a cause. Now, how is all that possible? Again, how can God do this and still be true to his character? How can God bestow his righteousness as a gift without a cause in his grace and still be just because we are condemned rightly so, sinners? It's that last little phrase there in verse 24 that is also very, very important. It says this is possible through the redemption of, which is in Christ Jesus, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now we hear the word 
redemption or redeemer or redeem. I think typically we, we think religiously. And those are terms that are, you know, kind of in a religious church context, redemption. It's, you, know, you feel like you always have to say them base, redemption, you know, some, it's a religious term. Not so when Paul wrote those words. It was a, it was a word that um, would have been uh, well understood in that first century culture. Uh, because it's a, it's a word that literally means uh, to release or to set free upon the payment of a price, of a ransom price. If someone was held hostage, money was demanded in order to set the person free, the money is paid, the ransom is, pra- is paid, the person is set free, he has been redeemed. Now, as Paul is writing this and the culture of ancient Rome, a third of the people walking around the Roman Empire were slaves. Um, millions and millions and millions of people. They estimate up to a, one out of three people you would meet would be a slave. A slave because they were a conquered people, maybe. They were enslaved from a, from a war or, uh, or they were in debt. They were indentured servants of some and they had to work off their debt um, in their slavery. It was very, very common to be a slave. It was also common that you could work, you could buy your freedom, or or someone could buy your freedom and set you free. And that's what this word meant, to set free upon the payment of of a price. Now, the word redemption involves three things. In order for redemption to take place, three things have to be there. Number one, you have, there has to be a prisoner. There has to be someone enslaved, someone who is in the marketplace where goods and, and people were, were sold, bought and sold. And again, in the first century, that was very common. What Paul is saying here, we are under sin. Everyone born in the world is born with a sin nature, enslaved to sin. Everyone has a debt too great that they cannot pay. We are the prisoner. In order for redemption to take place, there also has to be a purchaser. Somebody had to be willing and able to have the money to free the slave. And what Paul is telling us here is that Jesus Christ came into the world and he was able because he was God and he was willing, and he became our Redeemer. You have to have a prisoner, you have to have a purchaser, and you have to have the the price that is paid. In order for redemption to take place, that price has to be paid. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter wrote it in chapter 1, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And here's the wonder of wonders. The one who was offended, God himself, pays the price of the offensive one sinners. 
The payment price, too expensive for us to pay, is paid by the one who could only pay it, who was willing to pay it, Jesus Christ. And he secured our ransom. He set us free. And there was no other way to be freed from the slave market of sin, from the certain doom and judgment of the wrath of God. It was the only way of escape, the only possible way of rescue, the payment of a price. In other words, Jesus became our substitute. We should have died. We should have continued in our misery and ended up in hell, deservedly so. But he took our place. He took our sin upon himself. He received the judgment of the Father and was condemned. He who knew no sin, it says in 1 Corinthians, became sin. 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. God has infinite wisdom in keeping with his perfect love operating under the principle that he always operates under to fallen man, grace. He sent Jesus into the world to secure our redemption. He set us free. He set us free. And it's applicable simply by receiving the gift by faith and faith alone. Job 9, 2, it asks, can a man be right before God? And now we have an answer. Amazingly so, unworthy, sinful men condemned as none righteous, no, not one. Born sinners, guilty as charged, the wrath of God of eternal damnation hanging over the head of everybody born into the world receives the free gift of the righteousness of God apart from any works, without a cause, freely given because the ransom was paid by a Redeemer who died in our place. We're forgiven. Eternal life is given all because of Jesus. But now, God. You see, behind our name is a little Greek phrase, Nuni Dei. Mark Carey, born a slave to sin, undeserving, heading to hell, Nuni Dei, but now God. The impact of these words, not only for our eternity, uh, but the impact of these words um, affect us every day of our life. Are you carrying a, a load of guilt? Some, some past sin that the evil one wants to keep bringing up and reminding you of how unworthy you are. But now, God. Is there some sorrow, some grief this morning that seems to be all-consuming in your life? But now, God.
Are you facing some situation, some crisis, the coronavirus that's impacting the world? But now, God. Are you raising those preschoolers and it's more than you can bear right now? But now, God. Will spending another day at that job seem like an impossibility? I can't do it another day. But now, God. Do you wonder where the strength is going to come to endure tomorrow? But now, God. You see, if God could take the ultimate problem of mankind, our sinfulness, our separation from him, and our inability to do anything about it, and if he could solve that problem by giving us the gift of his righteousness so that now he could look at us and see his righteousness, not our own, because we don't have any, and therefore declare us to be right in his eyes, justify us, acquit us of all charges, done so without a cause, freely, by his grace, based on the payment that Jesus Christ made in his own blood on the cross. If he could do that and solve the ultimate problem, what is there they're going to face tomorrow? that doesn't end with those glorious little words, noonie day, but now God. In fact, Paul's going to develop that more in chapter 8 when he says, nothing, nothing separates us from his love, but now God. And you know what? You know what he's asking of us today? You know how, what he's asking of us in order for this to be a reality in our, even our, in our daily life? To all who believe, who simply get up in the morning and before you put your feet on the floor, you say, Lord, I can't do anything today to please you. But now, I have your presence with me. I can do all things. You have given me everything I need for life and guidance. It's all secured, bought, paid for, purchased, free of charge at the cross. And so whatever comes my way today, Father, no matter what it is, noony day, but now God. And we get up in the morning and we live our life with the full confidence and the joy He's God. We're not, but we're safe with him. And if there's any doubt, all we have to do is look to the cross. 2,000 years ago, it was all secured for us by a Redeemer who loved us enough to pay the price. Two words to leave here today. Noonie day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the kindness, for your grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. Oh, Father, may it lead to a life of, of, of reverential worship to you.
all that you've done for us, Father, we, we can't even imagine. And Lord, this, we only got through verse 24. <laughs> Next week when we come back, Lord, you're going to help us understand verse 25 and 26 because there's more here to, to unpack. You're not finished yet telling us of the wonders of your grace. And so, Lord, we say thank you. And now, Father, we're going to just lift our voices up to you and express our thanks and sing of your glorious redemption to us. As we do, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit be the one um, empowering us and motivating us and instilling in us the joy of what we are about to sing because it's all true. All because of your grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.